0: Uh, welcome, everybody, to this summer school uh, public lecture. My name is Matthias Koenig Archibugi. I'm the program director of the IR Government and Society program in the uh, in the summer school, uh, and thank you very much for being here tonight. Uh, uh, the speaker for tonight is Professor Seidel, uh, and I will introduce him in, uh, in a minute, just to give you some uh, information about the format. So Professor Seidel will speak for approximately one hour, uh, and then uh, he will take uh, questions and have a dialogue with, uh, with you uh, uh, afterwards, and there will be people with, uh, with, with microphones. Uh, so we hope that there will be a lively debate with uh, various opinions being voiced, uh, Take into consideration that the lecture is being recorded and that a podcast will be uh, posted on LSE uh, website. Uh, I should also mention that Professor Sadell will show some slides, and especially towards the end of the lecture, because it is talking about a, a topic that has uh, violent implication. There will be also some slides that will show some picture that some might find uh, uh, some might find um, upsetting. They, they, they show essentially the consequences of uh, uh, of uh, religious violence. Uh, this will be no yes not not nothing extreme nothing extreme don't don't worry uh but you might at some point uh, uh you know wish to you know uh, look away for for a little while if something comes up this will be some uh some slides that will come after the the picture of the 911 uh, attack on the twin towers so as i say this is towards the towards the end of the lecture uh finally something a little bit more kind of uh um, uplifting, if you like, I hope that many of you will join us for drinks uh, uh, at the end of the lecture. This will be in the senior common room on the fifth uh, uh, floor of this uh, of this building. okay so this will be just after this uh, this lecture. there will be a drink reception. So let me introduce the speaker for today, uh, Professor. John Seidel is Sir Patrick Gilliam, Professor of International and Comparative Politics here at LSE. Uh, he received his PhD from Cornell Universities, where he worked under the supervision of uh, Benedict Anderson. Uh, and Professor Seidel's research focuses on Southeast Asia, with a particular interest uh, in uh, the Philippines and Indonesia. Uh, I will just mention briefly two books of his. Uh, The first book, Capital, Coercion, and Crime, Bossism in the Philippines, pioneered the study of subnational authoritarianism. This is the form of authoritarianism, authoritarianism, authoritarianism driven by Local bosses, gangsters, and local dynasties, political dynasties. Uh, and then also the second, or was it the third book? Anyway, there were a number of books here. One of them I would like to mention is Riot's uh, Pogrom Jihad, Religious Violence in Indonesia, which also will be uh, um, will be uh, the basis of some of the things that Professor Saidel will say today. Uh, Professor Seidel also engages with the, with the world of policymaking. Uh, he has served as consultant for a number of uh, government agencies, non-governmental organizations, foundations, and other agencies. So please, uh, uh, please join me in, uh, uh, in thanking uh, John Seidel for being here and for giving this lecture.
1: Thank you, Matthias, and thank you all for coming. I'm sort of relieved to see that there aren't too many students taking my my course here in the audience, um, which may be a bad thing because it means they're, they've already had enough of listening to me three hours uh, a day, uh, but it is a good thing insofar as uh, uh, I can safely repeat myself in some measure without boring uh, too many of you. Um the Title for uh, today's lecture uh, worried me when I revisited uh, uh, the need to uh, prepare for the lecture because it seemed to be potentially um, overly ambitious or maybe overly pretentious. And the notion of attacking a conventional wisdom uh, set up what Americans call a straw man and what people in this country, for some strange reason, call uh, Aunt Sally. I don't know why they call it Aunt Sally, but this uh, sort of caricature, uh, oversimplified version of an argument that you set up uh, only to, to knock down. Um, and the argument I'm, I'm, I'm sort of arguing against, the, the view of the world of Islam and politics that I'm arguing against, is one that sees Islam as an increasingly powerful force in world politics, uh, that sees Islam as enjoying growing strength as a basis for collective identity and mobilization in politics, that sees the world as one in which we find increasing Islamic religiosity, uh, widening the distance between Muslims and non-Muslims, and that sees increasing Islamic radicalization, uh, with radicalization meaning uh, Muslims being more inclined to do dangerous and, in particular, violent things. So it occurred to me that maybe this was an exaggerated caricature of uh, the way some people depict the world. But then again, I remembered a, a, uh, an encounter I had a few years ago in which I was sitting on a bus, happily enough, not this bus, but a bus that actually travels that very same route where this bus famously uh, was detonated and destroyed on July seventh, two 2005. And just a a few minutes before reaching this destination, as I was uh, happily enjoying my crossword puzzle on the bus, two of my colleagues from one of my two departments here at the LSE hopped on the bus, having arrived at Euston Station from the suburban towns where they live. And as we sat on the bus, one of them described his vision of the world in which we were living. I think this was probably around 2014, uh, the time when this map was produced. And he just sort of blithely, as we approach that famous site where the bomb was, was detonated, he sort of depicted a world in which all across North Africa and the Middle East, stretching across the Muslim world, uh, Al-Qaeda and various other Islamist extremist groups were entrenched. So if you look at this map and you imagine, you know, a sort of uniform picture that all of these countries were somehow uniformly, effectively, completely controlled uh, by Islamist extremist groups, and I, you know, I, I didn't really try and argue him out of this uh, vision of the world. But I would say even otherwise well-informed, um, articulate, uh, impressive uh, academics in the world may subscribe to this kind of view of this you know this kind of picture. Uh, And if they did so in 2014, they might have done all the more so in 2015 when this map was produced. And more generally, it seems to me that every time we uh, bear witness to yet another uh, horrible terrorist incident, whether in this country, uh, in France, or otherwise, we're treated to a familiar news cycle uh, in which analysts bemoan the limitations of government policies in preventing terrorist atrocities, Uh, in which uh, commentators bemoan the uh, incomplete uh, and problematic um, position of Uh, integration of immigrant Muslim minorities in countries like the United Kingdom and France, the availability of young men and sometimes women for uh, suicide and other terrorist missions in the name of Islam, and a general state of affairs in which a war against terrorism is said to uh, likely last beyond our lifetimes. So uh, it seems to me that there is not just a caricature of an argument uh, against which to pit what I'd like to say today, but in abiding anxiety and pessimism about Islam and world politics in this country, in other countries nearby, and in general around the world. Uh, and that's, that's not just a caricature of a conventional wisdom out there. I think there, there are many people who subscribe to this, this view of things, and perhaps uh, you, you do as well. What I'd like to suggest as an alternative to that perspective on Islam and world politics uh, is not simply uh, a descriptive alternative. We could uh, immediately suggest that in terms of terrorism in particular, we do not see over time that we're living in an era uh, which in recent memory is one of a specially heightened terrorist threat or actual terrorist activity. Um, you can see that 2017 looks rather low Uh, on the spectrum compared to uh, earlier years in uh, lifetimes earlier than your own uh, in this regard. Uh, And we might note that there are other kinds of threats um, that might take more lives that we uh, are less anxious about, uh, but which are equally newsworthy and perhaps equally worthy of policy attention and close academic critical study. But in terms of what I'd like to do today, it's to suggest not only a non-alarmist and anti-alarmist account of Islam and world politics, but also suggests something of an alternative analytical perspective for understanding the forms of violence we do see uh, in the name of Islam and world politics uh, today. And uh, I'd like to suggest that the violence we see in the name of Islam is reflective not of uh, growing strength and solidity, uh, in the name of Islam, but actually of uh, diminishing strength, diminishing solidity, uh, solidity of Islam as the basis for uh, social identity and political uh, mobilization for political action uh, among political unity among Muslims. now my perspective on uh, on these matters is in part that of someone who still remembers what world politics was like before the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1978-79. I'm old enough to remember that, and so I can, I can tell you from uh, the, the vantage point of, of age that it was not ever thus. I'm also old enough to know from studying Russia uh, and studying Soviet politics that a phenomenon viewed as such a dangerous threat in one period can disappear off the map or uh, largely diminish uh, in another. Um, So uh, I think I'm in a position perhaps to say uh, this too shall pass. Um, But my perspective on these matters is more sharply and specifically informed by a number of years, as Matthias noted, um, of studying Islam and politics in a particular setting, uh, that of Indonesia, which, as it happens, is the world's single most populous uh, majority Muslim country, and since 1999, uh, the world's uh, largest Muslim democracy. Uh, and this is a country that I've been studying uh, and following politics in and focusing on Islam and politics in since the 1980s. So... Um, If we go back to uh, the 1980s, the context is one of the military dictatorship of longtime President Suharto in power in the country since uh, a military coup in 1966. And uh, when I started studying Indonesia in the mid-1980s, it was a country in which secularism and uh, an ecumenical approach to politics and social life uh, was entrenched Uh, a country in which we saw the preeminence of a non-Muslim ethnic Chinese business class and the head start enjoyed by Christians uh, in uh, the business world, uh, in the civil service, in the army, and so forth, was such that by the mid-1980s, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, the head of military intelligence, the central bank governor, uh, the minister of finance were all Christians in a country that was 87% majority Muslim, a country where the newspaper of record, the Jakarta Post, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Compass was uh, a Catholic-owned paper, uh, and where major businesses, where the university belt, uh, where you know, social, cultural, intellectual life was dominated by uh, non-Muslims. And against this backdrop, it appeared uh, that Islam and uh, ordinary Muslims around the country who took religion seriously were deeply disadvantaged and marginalized in this setting. Uh, and thus we see Islam as a basis uh, for some kind of oppositional activity to the military dictatorship already emerging in the heavily stage-managed and circumscribed uh, five-year uh, regular elections that were held uh, for a sort of pseudo-parliamentary body. In 1977 and 1982, the one Islamic party allowed to participate uh, does especially well in Jakarta, the national capital, and some other areas of the country in sort of uh, massive campaign rallies and convoys, and even uh, all the restrictions on its activities uh, fail to diminish the sense that there's some kind of popular, perhaps populist, challenge being pitted against a regime perceived to be uh, sympathetic to, uh, controlled by Christians, uh, to be opposed to Islam in various ways, and to be promoting a secularism at the expense of the faith. And this kind of sentiment uh, was then more dramatically um, uh, demonstrated in 1984 in an incident in the poor sort of slum areas of the the harbor, the North Harbor area of Jakarta, known as Tanjung Priok. And there, uh, there was a a local mosque um, where the, the local imam, Uh, was very opposed to the government and had allowed a number of brochures and pamphlets and posters to be circulated and plastered around the walls of the mosque. And when uh, the security forces objected to this and asked him to remove these posters, he refused. And they entered the mosque with their shoes still on and uh, and forcibly removed these posters uh, and uh, arrested uh, some young men who were protesting uh, against this intrusion uh, against the faith. Uh, the next day, a crowd uh, appeared outside the local um, military uh, headquarters, uh, and uh, to demand the release of these young men. And in uh, one report or another, uh, we learn that either dozens of people were killed or hundreds of people were killed, depending on whom you believe. Their bodies carried away uh, late at night and buried uh, in a mass grave. Uh, in a controversial episode that would be investigated time and again by human rights activists years later. And this is particularly um, uh, sort of poignant and particularly controversial because the head of the armed forces at the time, a man seen to be the number two most powerful figure uh, in the government, in a, in a country, uh, 87% Muslim in population, was a Catholic and closely associated with other Catholic and Christian interests. So we could see in this incident the possibilities already there in the mid-1980s for Islam uh, to be some kind of basis for mobilizing people in uh, urban poor areas, among ordinary Indonesians, in the name of the faith, but against a very powerful, intrusive, cruel, abusive, predatory military dictatorship, which somehow has a whiff of Christian control about it as embodied by the figure of Benny Murdani, the, the long-time uh, intelligence and security czar at the time. We could also see that there are other ways in which Islam figures as a basis for resistance. Uh, I lived uh, in the city of Surabaya in East Java in 1997-1998, uh, and what was quite impressive at the time was that the neighboring island of Madura, Uh, which you can see is just a a 30-minute ferry ride away uh, from Surabaya uh, at the very tip of East Java, didn't have a bridge that connected the two. Uh, And there were plans being uh, launched to build a bridge. But a local religious scholar, uh, a man known as Kiai Haji Alawi, Kiai is a term referring to a local religious scholar from a traditionalist Islamic school on Java, a man from Madura, Um, who claimed to represent the the best interests of the pious Muslims of Madura, the Maduris said to be uh, very devoutly, seriously Muslim, and to be occupying not just the island of Madura, but cities and towns along the east coast of Java, said no bridge will be built. There will be no bridge built connecting Surabaya to Madura because Madura should be free of all of the the, the sort of social ills that would be spread from the city of Surabaya with the mixing of different kinds of people, different ethnicities and faiths and different ways of life, prostitution and gambling and, and uh, alcoholism and so forth, will not be allowed to establish themselves on the island of Madura. And I remember at the time I was quite impressed because this was a military dictatorship which time and again had not hesitated to kill people, you know, to Massacre people on the streets in broad daylight or otherwise. But they bowed before Kiai Haji Alawi's uh, influence and his claim to speak in the name of uh, the good people, the devout uh, Muslims of Madura, and they didn't build the bridge. So what we begin to see is uh, you know, the way in which Islam, by the 1980s and 1990s, in a country that's growing very rapidly industrializing, urbanizing, seeing the expansion uh, of uh, an urban middle and uh, managerial class is a country where Islam um, might be posing a potential basis for resistance to dictatorship, to military rule, uh, to the inroads of modernization, to economic development, to capitalism as embodied by non-Muslim ethnic Chinese businessmen uh, and the like. But by the 1990s, it's also worth noting, we see the rise of more and more uh, middle-class, managerial, professional uh, Pious Muslims who rise up through the university system uh, and take jobs in uh, in major companies, rise up into the managerial class, become uh, you know uh, bank managers, become uh, engineers, become bureaucrats, become army officers, join the ranks of the establishment in one way or another. And we see by the 1990s the rising sort of uh, uh, piety, uh, but also sort of bourgeois propriety of. Uh, more and more middle-class Muslims. And to try and capture this trend and to claim it as his own, longtime President Suharto in 1991 made the Hajj and renamed himself as Haji Muhammad Suharto to try and and sort of capture and appropriate uh, and domesticate uh, this trend uh, for his own as opposed to fight it and keep it at bay. And in doing so, he also created something called the All-Indonesian, uh, Association of Islamic Intellectuals, known by its Indonesian acronym as ICHMI, and put at its head as long-time a Minister of Research and Technology, and empowered people um, uh, who claim to be uh, devout Muslims, to be serious about Islam, to join the government, and, and to join uh, it, the positions of power, and to be part of the political uh, elite. It was against this backdrop that I ended up in Surabaya in uh, 1997 and 1998, and when I was there, I ended up studying a series of riots that had unfolded in East Java and West Java and other uh, parts of Indonesia over the preceding years of 1995, 96, 97, all of which involved Islam. In these riots, you found in cities and towns uh, in Java and elsewhere, incidents which sparked the anger of local uh, Islamic school uh, pupils, of students, of Islamic schools, uh, and of others who took the faith seriously. These were incidents in which local religious scholars uh, were insulted. Uh, these were incidents in which, for example, a local religious scholar heading an Islamic boarding school uh, was beaten up by a policeman after uh, the, the, the religious scholar had punished the son of the policeman for stealing uh, something at the school. And rumor had it that the, uh, the religious scholar had not just been beaten up by the policemen, but had been killed by the policemen. And when uh, the, the students arrived at the hospital uh, and discovered he was still alive, they were still shocked to see how badly beaten his, he was. And after that incident and others, they then took to the streets and engaged in what we would describe as rioting. And what was interesting is they attacked government buildings, police stations, They also attacked department stores and shopping malls and supermarkets owned by uh, non-Muslim ethnic Chinese businessmen. Often they also attacked non-Muslim houses of worship, Christian churches in particular. But when they went into these department stores and shopping malls and supermarkets, instead of looting, instead of taking goods out and running with them, they did something interesting. They pulled the goods out, uh, motorcycles from motorcycle showrooms, televisions, Uh, stereos, all sorts of goods, and they burned them in the streets. And by doing so, they suggested that they were not simply uh, angry about one or another grievance uh, that stemmed from the the insult uh, that they perceived to have been Uh, launched against their faith. They also seem to suggest that they were disavowing the kind of ambitions, the kind of avarice, the greed and acquisitiveness that they began to identify, not only with non-Muslims, with the ethnic Chinese and Christians against whom they distinguished themselves, but they also were suggesting, however obliquely, that they were also not simply like those urban middle-class aspirational Muslims, who were joining the ranks of the managerial elite, who were becoming more and more acquisitive, buying fancy cars, rising up into the establishment, uh, and so forth. And thus, interestingly, when Suharto, in 1998, was forced to resign amidst the Asian economic crisis, and Habibi, his then vice president, succeeded him as president in a largely peaceful transfer of power and uh, shifted from military dictatorship to civilian democracy, holding uh, competitive elections in 1999, interestingly, what we found was not that the elections that were held in 1999 saw a set of Islamic and Islamist parties sweeping to victory, demonstrating that once you opened the doors uh, of uh, political competition and representation to a country that was 87% Muslim, that most people would vote for Islamic parties. Instead, the parties that were brought in with the strongest uh, uh, pluralities were the parties that had uh, ecumenical uh, bases, that uh, appealed to voters who were Muslim and non-Muslim, that appealed to businessmen and bankers for funding who were Muslim and non-Muslim, and who drew on Muslims and non-Muslims, and Muslims with little Islamic educational or associational affiliation uh, to serve as members of parliament and other representatives. Uh, And thus, we find election results already in 1999 drastically disappointing uh, those who had hoped that some kind of Islamist project would be uh, endorsed in the first popular vote uh, in this now first biggest, largest uh, majority Muslim democracy uh, in the world. Uh, Instead, we see something rather different. The the first person who becomes president is a a traditionalist Islamic scholar, but one who has a record of cooperating with Christians, who wins an award um, from a foundation in Israel because he's promoting Indonesian relations with Israel and promotes a genuinely multi-faith and ecumenical uh, vision of uh, Indonesian society. And soon in 2001, he succeeded by a a woman, the daughter of Indonesia's first president, whose party contains a parliamentary slate that is more than a third non-Muslim, mostly Protestant, in its composition. Um, So, can I go back to these? There we go. Previous. I just need to go back. So um, so uh, this is quite a disappointment for some, um, and uh, but it's worth noting, alongside a set of developments that unfolds in 1999, 2000, uh, into 2001. And that is to say, in two areas of the country, uh, in the Spice Islands, uh, what's known as the Maluccas or Maluku, and in uh, an area of central Sulawesi, uh, we see uh, areas where the population in terms of absolute and relative numbers, is more or less 50-50 Christian uh, and Muslim. And in these areas, we begin to see, as the elections approach, rising tension and anxiety and excitement and conflict. And between 1999, 2000, 2001, in these areas of roughly equal Muslim and Christian population, we see local forms of interreligious violence, sort of local civil wars unfolding, Um, between uh, Muslims and Christians. But interestingly enough, these unfold in communities where anthropologists who lived in these areas for years before the conflict tell us that more and more Muslims and Christians are becoming not more different from one another, but more similar to one another in all sorts of ways. Linguists who study the language used by people in these localities say people are literally speaking more and more the same language. Sociologists who look at the kinds of professions, the kind of roles in the economy, the kind of positions in local society previously reserved for the Christians are now equally occupied by the Muslims. And indeed, the two major political parties that attract the most votes in these localities are not simply a Muslim political party and a Christian political party, as had been the case in the 1950s, the last time when these people were allowed to vote freely, Instead, both Muslims and Christians were voting for the two major ecumenical parties that embraced and encompassed Christians and Muslims uh, equally across the country. So in other words, what we see in these single areas, in this vast archipelago, the only areas where there's actually interreligious violence, is that the violence unfolds not in the context of increasing differences between Christians and Muslims, but in some ways between the dangerous possibility that Muslims and Christians are not that different after all, which is quite uh, anomalous. And yet over the course of 1999, 2000, and 2001, the embattled position of Muslims in these communities within Indonesia becomes a rallying cry for jihad among some Indonesian Islamist activists who think that they need to defend their fellow uh, Muslims against the onslaught of violent Christian attacks uh, in these far-flung islands of the archipelago. And we see spectacular uh, sort of spectacles of uh, Islamist activists holding huge rallies, brandishing swords and dressed up uh, in, in certain outfits that suggest a capacity for spectacular violence. And the dispatching of uh, dozens of young men uh, recently trained and armed by elements in the police and the military to join in the defense of Muslim communities and violent attacks on their Christian uh, uh, counterparts. But by 2001, this new president who comes into power, Megawati Sukarnoputri, uh, wants to protect her fellow uh, party-mate Christian communities and closes down these uh, interreligious uh, conflicts uh, in these far-flung parts uh, of the archipelago. And given the strength of her political party uh, within parliament, various Islamist parties previously opposed to her uh, elevation to the presidency uh, join her as junior partners in the cabinet. They give up uh, their hopes and dreams for a change uh, uh, in the constitution in favor of Islamic law. And they accede to the presidency of someone whose cabinet and closest advisors and financiers and party mates include many non-Muslims, many Muslims. Christians, in fact. And thus, just a few short years after the chairman of an, the All Indonesia Islamic Intellectuals Association had been briefly president of the country, we see a president entrenched in power uh, who is thick, you know, thick in uh, working hand in glove with Christian, uh, non-Muslim, anti-Islamist elements. It's against this backdrop that we see in October of 2002, uh, a year after the September 11th attacks uh, in New York and Washington, uh, the uh, series of bombings in Bali uh, and over the next couple of years, a set of other terrorist bombings attributed to this man and a shadowy Islamist terrorist group uh, identified as Jama'a Islamiyah. Uh, in other words, what we see in 2001 is the, the onset, belatedly, of Islamist terrorism. And so uh, the, the, the pattern of transition to democracy in Indonesia is one that unfolds in which uh, we begin to see the possibility of change on the horizon in a way in which Islam is invoked uh, through forms of mass mobilization, collective protests such as the riots I mentioned – as the transition to democracy begins to unfold, there's briefly a period of interreligious violence, and as the country begins to consolidate its democracy in the early years of the 21st century, uh, we see a kind of last hurrah of a kind uh, in which Islamist terrorist groups, just as their counterparts in the parliamentary arena, are being fully co-opted into the system, giving up their aspirations for Islamic law and a transformation of Indonesian society in the name of Islam, uh, engage in uh, certain forms of uh, so-called global jihad, targeting foreign tourists in nightclubs in Bali, attacking the Australian embassy and American-owned hotels in Jakarta and the like. Uh, A a certain belated shift um, uh, towards a global jihad at a moment when Islam as a political project uh, appears to uh, be shifting into dramatic decline. So in other words, if we look at uh, the democracy that's beginning to consolidate itself in this huge country uh, of over 250 million, uh, we see secular political parties rather than Islamic parties already demonstrating their strength in 1999 and 2004, and in the most recent elections, 2014, we can see that these secular parties uh, win as much as 70% of the vote And among those Islamic or Islamist parties uh, that are also represented in Parliament and in various cabinets, we can see that they're deeply divided along various kinds of lines, personal, institutional, um, as well as ideological. And over these same years, we see Islamic parties abandoning calls for constitutional change, competing for seats in cabinets, forming coalitions with these other parties as junior partners. So, in other words, overall, what we see in Indonesia over the past three decades is a kind of trajectory in which Islam first begins to emerge on the horizon as a threat or a promise for mobilization that appears to be on the basis of something like resistance, resistance to dictatorship, opposition to the establishment, anti-status quo, a challenge Uh, to the existing order, a challenge to capitalist development as embodied in non-Muslim businesses and the like. But over time, as Indonesia shifts from centralized dictatorship to decentralized democracy, we see Islamist parties and Islam as a political project absorbed into the system, parliamentarized, divided, fragmented, and factionalized. Since 2001, what have we seen? Uh, in Indonesia, we see that Indonesia is a country where Christianity has flourished. We see uh, more and more Christian churches, Christian schools, evangelical Christianity flourishing in the country, and the non-Muslim ethnic Chinese community increasingly active, influential, uh, and important in terms of its wealth and influence in politics and society. We see among the Islamist parties some attacks on on uh, deviant uh, uh, sex within the faith. We see certain kinds of Islamist mobilizations on social issues that would be familiar to us from a variety of other settings. Uh, And yet at the same time, we see a society uh, in which there's also uh, increasing social and cultural liberalization, as you can see in terms of uh, Indonesia's most famous openly gay activist, Dede Utomo, and a range of gay organizations and activities in the public realm unimaginable in previous decades in the country. Uh, We can see this in most recent memory with the election in 2014 of a governor of Jakarta, the national capital, who's not just Chinese but Christian, and so popular that people are thinking about him as a possible uh, uh, candidate for presidency. It's only a few months ago that large-scale crowds were mobilized against him, accusing him of blasphemous statements against Islam, and because of his Christian background and his political uh, leanings, Um, A very tightly contested election uh, that removes him from power. But all in all, it seems to me, uh, the case of Indonesia over the past few decades suggests something in terms of broader implications for understanding uh, Islam and world politics in a way that uh, I'd like to suggest today. First of all, it suggests that if you begin to wonder when Islam appears on the horizon as a force in politics in Indonesia and potentially uh, in the world. It appears when questions about representation begin to loom larger. They begin to loom large in the Indonesian context in the 1980s and 1990s as the military dictatorship goes on and on. The military dictator gets older and older and people begin to wonder not only about succession but about what ordinary people might vote for what they might want if given the chance. There's a felt sense that under this dictatorship, ordinary people are not being represented, that their grievances and aspirations are being kept at bay, and that the question of what they really want, who really represents the people, is being held in suspension, but that it's more and more important, more and more of interest. And that might be true also in different ways around the world, that it's when people begin to wonder more and more about what do Muslims really want in different settings and globally that the question of uh, Islam as a faith but also as a political project begins to emerge. Maybe what Muslims want has has something to do with Islam in some way, however that might be configured and construed. But what we also see in the Indonesian case is that the pattern of mobilization that seems so uh, dangerous and frightening or exciting and promising, depending on your perspective, over the 1970s and 80s and up into the 1990s, protests and riots and the like, it also then subsides. Mobilization is followed by demobilization, as is the assumption about how nervous one needs to be about the possibilities of resistance. So that bridge that wasn't built under conditions of dictatorship because of Kiai Haji uh, Alawi, it's been built without too much in the way of protest. Uh, The good Kiai Alawi is now uh, safely deceased. But also what we see over time is that when democracy is consolidated in a country like Indonesia, we see that Muslims are not united among themselves that there is no single solid Muslim vote, that what Muslims really want, if given a chance to choose, is actually uh, quite diverse. There are different kinds of Muslims who distrust one another, who differ from one another in a variety of terms, in terms of their economic and social interests, in terms of their interpretations of the faith, in terms of their aspirations, uh, and so forth. And what we also see is that insofar as there is violence between Muslims and non-Muslims, that may be the real danger points are not when and where Muslims and non-Muslims are really so terribly different. But maybe what's really more frightening is how similar, how there might not be all that different after all, and that that is perhaps more threatening than the possibility of difference uh, instead. But overall, it seems to me that the picture is a fairly happy one of democratization unfolding successfully in this, the world's, single most populous Muslim country. And insofar as it's accompanied by violence, the violence is highly limited, right? Single, uh, you know, two areas of the country uh, where there's a bit of interreligious violence for a couple years. And over the course of 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, four years, every year there's one terrorist bombing. Not that impressive, not that frightening, not that worrying for such a large Muslim country. It's kind of a last hurrah among a bunch of sore loser extremists in the face of a set of developments and trends which are quite contrary to their goals and aspirations. Against this backdrop, it seems to me that we should turn from uh, Indonesia to other parts of the world and see what lessons this country, which is not only uh, large um, and interesting, but potentially uh, a good illustration uh, of Uh, of other parts of the world and what Muslims around the world uh, might want, if given a chance, might tell us about developments and trends elsewhere. And here we can see that if you look at other consolidated democracies across the Muslim world, the pattern is rather similar. In Pakistan, when elections are held, in Bangladesh, uh, when elections are held, the parties that do best, the parties that dominate in elections are overwhelmingly ecumenical parties, not based on Islam. The Islamist parties uh, who try and mobilize people uh, in, behind an Islamist project of one kind or another are minority parties. Only in Pakistan, when they receive special assistance from the military, uh, do they, they have more uh, of, uh, of a role. In uh, Senegal, uh, in Tunisia, uh, in Turkey, we see um, that the, the parties that emerge to be most successful, even if, as in Turkey, they trace their roots back uh, to uh, an Islamist movement, uh, they have to transform themselves into a, a more broadly construed party, as we see in Turkey, a party that begins from Islamist roots, that becomes the party of business uh, by the turn of the 21st century, uh, if they're going to get more than 20% uh, of the vote. And what we see across these Muslim democracies as they've emerged across Asia and Africa uh, and even parts of the Middle East that we see, for example, now in Tunisia, is that these are democracies that are no better but no worse than democracies elsewhere. Sure, in some of these countries, like we see in Turkey, there are problems with populism and electoral authoritarianism, but we know there are likewise problems with populism and electoral authoritarianism in non-Muslim democracies as well. Sure, in some of these cases, people use Islam in a way uh, that is mobilized against non-Muslims or mobilized uh, in ways that are discriminatory uh, or, uh, or backward-looking in terms of uh, gender relations and otherwise. But that's hardly unique to these sorts of countries. We could see uh, instances in a variety of other democracies when the same problems we would attribute Uh, to these Muslim democracies are found. In India, uh, in Nigeria, uh, in uh, Russia, in the United States, uh, electoral democracy uh, is accompanied by various kinds of problems and pathologies uh, that are not unique to Muslim societies by any stretch of the imagination. But, of course, uh, it's not in these sorts of settings where we uh, identify uh, the problems um, that we associate Uh, with violence and Islam in world politics. Instead, it seems to me, we find two particular kinds of settings where we tend to see uh, violence in the name of the faith mobilized uh, in a a kind of spectacular and sustained fashion. And here, one kind of context uh, is that of um, peripheral areas of nation-states where we find minority Muslim populations engaged in secessionist struggles, uh, struggles for new nation states, for new national homelands, uh, typically for minority Muslim populations trapped uh, in a majority non-Muslim country. And in some of these settings, a preceding history dating back maybe to the 70s or 1980s of secessionist or separatist mobilization dominated by a secular kind of movement uh, sees a pattern of disappointment and disillusionment, as the leaders of these secular uh, secessionist movements are co-opted uh, into forms of government, like in the, the southern Philippines, the head of the Moro Nab- National Liberation Front, Nur becomes governor of an autonomous region of Muslim Mindanao, uh, which is notorious for its corruption and inefficiency and is co-opted by the government. And against the Moro National Liberation Front, we see the mobilization of a Moro-Islamic liberation front. And when then the Moro-Islamic liberation front uh, does a deal uh, with uh, the president uh, of the Philippines uh, to try and craft a new form of autonomy, we see a residual uh, element of Islamist, terrorist uh, sort of uh, intransigence, kidnapping, sometimes uh, beheading uh, foreign missionaries and tourists, uh, and in the face of an imminent peace deal between the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and the Philippine government, uh, the declaration of allegiance of this group to the the Islamic State uh, in Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. We can see this in Chechnya back in the 1990s, a struggle for Chechen independence that began as a secular struggle, uh, and then whose leaders are co-opted by the Russian regime in Moscow, uh, morphs into uh, a religious jihad. We can see this briefly in northern Mali a few years ago, uh, when uh, the the struggle for an independent Tuareg homeland in northern Mali, previously sponsored by uh, Colonel Qaddafi uh, in Libya, uh, after Qaddafi's Li- uh, forced departure and death uh, in the events of 2011, uh, we see a brief. Uh, transformation of this struggle into something re-stylized in the name of Islam. But there's another kind of setting as well where we see violence uh, used and sustained as a basis for mobilizing in the name of Islam. And here are areas of state collapse, areas, uh, entire countries, where the state order is undermined, not only by internal developments that see the breakdown of state order, but by foreign invasions, Afghanistan invaded by the Soviet Union in December of 1979, uh, and then after years of resistance and then Soviet withdrawal, uh, the descent into warlordism between rival uh, claimants to power in Afghanistan before the recentralization of power under a unified uh, form of Islamic rule. We can see this uh, in Iraq after the invasion by the United States and its allies, uh, and the destruction of the infrastructure of Iraq, uh, the dissolution of the Iraqi army, the Ba'ath Party, uh, and uh, the dissolution of the, the basic framework uh, of the state, and the emergence of different forms of Islamic uh, sort of paramilitary and warlord uh, like order on the, along the, the Shia and Sunni, uh, here the Sunni Awakening Council group uh, lines. We can see this in Somalia, a country that had suffered from uh, persistent Ethiopian intervention uh, and sponsorship uh, of various insurgent groups dating back to the 1980s and descended into warlordism in the 1990s. By by the, the year 2000, local experiments with Islamic law had coalesced in a union of Islamic courts, which then, in the face of another Ethiopian invasion in 2006 morphs into the organization we know as al-Shabaab, to resist foreign non-Muslim invasion. So we can see this also in Yemen, a country that's faced repeated forms and continuing forms of foreign intervention. We see this uh, in the forms of uh, state breakdown that unfold in Libya, and of course we know this is what we see in Syria. So in other words, what we see uh, in both uh, the first set of cases and the second set of cases is that we find violence and Islam persisting in in some kind of violent jihad when and where, and pretty much only when and where, one of two things happen. Either the promise of a national independence movement led by a secular movement uh, leads to disappointment and disillusionment, and a new form of nationalist mobilization is restylized in the name of Islam. An old struggle is dressed up in new clothes. And then another set of cases where the dissolution of an existing state order uh, leaves, by default, if not design, uh, the local population and local power centers within it. Uh, to grasp at the existing institutions and forms of leadership associated with Islam as the basis for the reconstruction of new forms of social control and political power. These are are highly problematic uh, settings in some of the most enduring conflict zones in the world, in which Islam is only uh, the latest iteration of uh, sets of struggles and problems of social order and political representation that have persisted in some cases for decades, uh, and thus Islam is is available and drawn into these struggles that really precede uh, the Islamization of conflict but this similar sort of logic of Islam and violence emerging when and where we find the weakness the pro- the, the decline uh, of, of projects um, with Uh, with declining hopes and capacities for success, is also true if we think about uh, the great incidents of so-called global jihad or transnational jihad, which animate uh, uh, certain groups associated with al-Qaeda on the one hand, and more recently uh, Islamic State on the other. When we look at the, the emergence of global jihad on the scene of world politics, At the turn of the 21st century, it emerges, as my colleague Fawaz Jerges has argued in his book, uh, The Far Enemy, it emerges precisely at the point when a variety of national level struggles or jihad in Egypt, in Algeria, and elsewhere have reached dead ends and defeats. And Osama bin Laden's declaration of war uh, against the United States in 1998 and the launching Uh, of the famous attacks on September 11th, 2001, unfold precisely at a moment when struggles around the world in the name of Islam appear to be subsiding and declining and reaching defeat. He opts for global jihad not because things are going so well in different uh, settings and uh, scenarios. Instead, he opts for global jihad uh, because of the lack of alternatives. We likewise see the same case when we think of uh, the emergence of uh, uh, terrorist activities uh, in parts of North Africa. Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb engages in a brief uh, bombing campaign, kidnapping tourists and the like, after the decline and demise of the long-standing Islamist insurgency uh, in Algeria. We see in the case of Somalia, it's after uh, not just the Ethiopian, but later the Kenyan invasion of Somalia, that the group Al-Shabaab, decimated and diminished in its actual strength and territorial control in Somalia, opts for these episodic terrorist attacks uh, in neighboring Kenya. And we can see this even in the case of the Islamic State. It's been over the past few years, since uh, late 2014, early 2015... When the territory claimed and controlled by so-called Islamic State within Iraq and Syria began to diminish in the face of uh, uh, various uh, military campaigns from different quarters against it, it's been in the face of that uh, imminent demise and ongoing defeat that we see uh, the, the shift of uh, ISIS in terms of its activity and attention uh, to other settings. Um, like France uh, and like London, um, as we've seen uh, in recent memory. But here, what it seems to me worth noting, uh, if we think that the threat uh, of Islam is not a far-flung threat from afar, but the threat of violence in the name of the faith is something, as they say in this country, that's homegrown, it's worth recalling that the, the series of terrorist incidents that unfold in France... Uh, In 2014, and 15, and 16, um, unfold in the wake of the first national election in France in which the Muslim vote has overwhelmingly, uh, perhaps 90%, supported the winning candidate, and which the victory of uh, President Francois Hollande in 2012 is widely. said to have come from the Muslim vote, the first time in which Muslim participation in national elections have proven so decisive. Uh, And yet, over succeeding years, disappointment in what Hollande delivers to Muslims and non-Muslims alike uh, leads to uh, his drastically declining popularity. But what we see in, in France, in a more persistent vein, is that the numbers of people who subscribe to violent jihad is, is dramatically dwarfed by the numbers uh, of uh, Muslims in France who join the police and the security forces. Ten percent of the security forces uh, are said to be uh, devout Muslims in France. And alongside the famous slogan, Je suis Charlie, the famous slogan, Je suis Ahmed, uh, is also remembered. Uh, the Muslim police officer who was killed in the midst of the terrorist attacks in Paris. And similarly here, it seems to me, in London, we have uh, a series of events in recent memory which unfold tragically and which are met with a growing sense of concern about the broader picture of alienation, estrangement, dissatisfaction, and danger uh, represented by uh, the sizable Muslim minority immigrant population in the country. And yet we live in a city uh, that uh, is governed by a Muslim mayor, the most popular politician in this entire country, uh, and who works closely in hand with the first woman and openly gay police commissioner uh, for this great city. And so it seems to me that the broad pattern of change that we observe in this country, and overall across the world, is one which provides the basis not for such alarmism but for optimism. Looking back on Indonesia since the 1980s and then across different kinds of settings across the full breadth and diversity of the Muslim world, what can we see? We see that violence emerges at times when some sense of an audience of Muslim available for mobilization emerges. An audience, a population that is not fully, not successfully incorporated, subjugated, or represented. And perhaps it emerges not at, at just a worrying time, a bad time, but it, it emerges at a good time, when the possibilities for new forms of representation, the possibilities for political change, the possibility for Muslims to articulate their interests uh, are actually opening up rather than closing. So it's a sign of the possibility of positive change. Uh, it's, it's a symptom uh, of a period of transition of something breaking down and something else that has yet to be fully consolidated. It seems to me that violence does unfold and violence can persist in settings when the available institutions for the provision of security and social welfare for Muslims have been dramatically and drastically undermined, and when existing alternative modes for representing Muslims have been eliminated or prevented from evolving and entrenching themselves. But violence is always a sign of weakness rather than strength. And it seems to me that over the past decade we've seen the limited effectiveness of various forms of violence in an era when Muslims around the world enjoy more freedom than ever before uh, to practice their faith uh, in different ways and to engage in politics and engage with Muslims and non-Muslims in various political and social projects around the world with more freedom than ever before. And given that, it seems to me we have not only, in some ways, a basis for optimism about the future, but uh, an alternative way of understanding the present that we're living and are so concerned about today. So let me pause here, and uh, thank you very much.
0: So, we have uh, uh, two Stuart Sweet microphones. So, I would take perhaps uh, maybe two questions at a time, one or two questions at a time. Who would like to uh, start? Please raise your hand. Yes, we have one person here and one person there. So, we take those two people first.
2: Hi, my name is Diego Garcia. I came from Spain. First of all, I want to thank you for coming here and giving us this lecture uh, my question is related to france i don 't know if you are familiarized with the French writer Do you know him Yes My question is related about his last book um, what is, which speaks about a possibility in France for like a kind of Islamism party to take control of the country and, try, and that will try to transform the society into a more Islamic one. Uh, you are being very optimistic about the possibility of Islam. About transforming it to a more democratic way of thinking, don't you think that the possibility of France of becoming such a kind of Islamic country exists?
0: Is it okay? We take a second yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Yes, this gentleman over there. Yes. Yeah. Yes, please.
3: Hi, I am Mohit Agarwal. I come from. Uh, I am Indian and coming from a small country of Gabon. Uh, my question to Professor Seidel is. Uh, even though it was not exactly covered in the presentation, about the Middle East crisis currently ongoing, about the Qatar crisis. Uh, while the Arab coalition is not backing down, and comp- on the other hand, uh, Qatar is uh, showing more uh, strength by buying the latest one, by buying Neymar for 220 million euro. Uh, do you foresee a solution for this in coming f- future? Thank you.
1: Okay. Um, two very interesting questions. In terms of uh, Michel houlebeck 's novels, uh, which I, can't, I don't have the stomach to read, um, it seems to me that uh, the vision that he presents of a future for France is, is quite a, you know, a symptom uh, of uh, part of the public mood in France, and his success as an author, in, in part it's a kind of shock-the-monkey um, you know, effect that we also see in the political realm with certain forms of populist uh, politicking, obviously in the case of Le Pen and the National Front. Obviously, there is a, a market um, for these novels, and there is an electorate out there um, for a kind of politics that's based on uh, an apocalyptic, deeply pessimistic view of the future of the country, given the sizable Muslim minority in the country. But if we look back over you know, the, the, the past 20 years... Uh, it seems to me that we could see, for example, uh, in the whole hijab, uh, you know, um, uh, controversy. When uh, the government decided that it would ban uh, the the wearing uh, of Islamic headscarves in French schools, at the end of the day, uh, very few uh, students uh, defied uh, this ban. Very few students were. Um, you know, were insistent on trying to wear the headscarf. If you look at the, the polls and surveys in France, if there are any measure of religiosity, the idea that Muslims are any more religious uh, than Catholics uh, is a huge myth. And the idea that Muslims share a, a common view of, um, you know, of uh, social norms and preferences uh, on cultural questions uh, is also a huge myth. Uh, So it's hugely exaggerated, uh, it seems to me, in terms of the the great diversity of preferences and opinion and practices among French Muslims. The other thing to say is that the the political situation uh, is evolving, right? In 2012, uh, the Socialist Party courted the Muslim vote and won the election on the basis of the Muslim vote. But over the the subsequent years, it lost the Muslim vote, both because of French foreign policy in the Muslim world and also uh, because of sort of multicultural policies, um, you know, issues of sexuality and gender relations and so forth, on which it found itself at odds with uh, influential figures and spokesmen within the Muslim community. So at this point, the, the, the question of where the Muslim vote will go uh, in French politics is an open question, as are many questions in French politics, uh, uh, to be sure. So I think what we're likely to see in France is a reconfiguration of politics in, in an era of new politicians, new politics under Macron in particular. Um, and I, I think uh, those developments are worth uh, watching. But I don't see the Hulebeck scenario um, happening. But the fear that he represents will persist, and the National Front option will be part of the future for Muslims in that country as elsewhere in Europe. And the second question, sorry. On Qatar, I think what's quite interesting in the case of Qatar uh, is that um, while, like Saudi Arabia, Qatar is a monarchy, it seems to have embraced and exploited a number of developments and trends which for sort of foretell the demise of monarchy as an obviously outdated and inappropriate form of government in an era of popular sovereignty. Um, and the two obvious examples of that are Al Jazeera, you know, um, which represents a, a, a form of, of free flows of information transcending national borders that fundamentally challenges the basis of closed authoritarian societies and forms of social control such as we see in Saudi Arabia, if not in Qatar itself. Um, and the second thing is that Qatar has assiduously over the past ten years actively promoted the Muslim Brotherhood in a variety of different settings. Uh, And the Muslim Brotherhood, by contrast, is something that the the Saudis have been been desperately trying to suppress within Saudi society, given the influence they began to enjoy in the 1980s and 1990s, but in a variety of other settings. The Muslim Brotherhood, for all its limitations, um, represents the kind of seedbeds of a form of uh, Islamic associational activity that's autonomous of state power and that has a certain kind of religious legitimacy that's independent of the, the forms of monarchical social control that the Saudis depend on. In both those ways, Qatar is a progressive monarchy.
0: I saw a hand going up over there. Yes, this gentleman over here. At the back, at the very back, please.
2: hi uh I'm Zach. Thank you for your lecture um so I had two questions i'm gonna see if I could get them off before he takes the mic from me but um so I guess my first question is you you talked about how uh the i guess the um the waning or the idea that like the like Islamist groups are waning in power is uh or or influence is kind of um uh, alongside the rise of like secular governments, and uh, hold on, I'm trying to phrase my question properly. Um, to what extent do you think that that is kind of, or here's a better way of putting it: To what extent do you think that the role of financial backers in in propping up a lot of these like Islamist parties and governments uh, uh, like kind of distorts the idea? that they are, like, declining in influence, right? Because uh, in a lot of cases there are, uh, like, Islamist groups who receive funding from countries like the United States who try to uh, curtail, like, some secular nationalist movements that might be inimical to their interests, right? So, like, uh, I can't go through all the examples you had, but, like, the Taliban in Afghanistan were funded to uh, curtail the influence of the Soviets, or uh, I guess it's not hard to think of the U.S., like, uh, curtailing secular movements in uh, Iran in 1953 when they overthrew Mossadegh for the Shah, or uh, yeah. And then, uh, if I can get my second question off, you talked about um, uh, Syria, how the conflict in Syria gave way for like um, these groups to sprout up and kind of. Uh, use islam as like the foundation for new like institutions in the new government but from my understanding wasn't the uh initial revolution in syria or the uh initial conflict like the the groups that were resisting were initially secular and and inclusive right and even when they became armed and militarized they were still like the secular groups like the free syrian army and and uh stuff like that and only uh in the later stages did they uh um turn to,
0: like, Islamist groups. Okay, the, Okay, this gentleman, yes. I'll, I'll give you a chance later to come back. <laughs> yes, the gentleman who just raised your hand. Um,
4: hi there. Uh, from the United States. Um, I was just wondering uh, to, in a sense, separate Islam, as you kind of did at multiple uh, junctures, from Islamist groups. Uh, you mentioned uh, and I'm not an expert at this, so I apologize if the question is ill-founded, but um, that, uh, you know, the extension of to global jihad of Islamist groups and violence that spreads less domestically and more on an international scale uh, kind of represents more of de- an act of desperation. Um, I was wondering whether or not you felt that uh, with, you know, the election, for instance, of Donald Trump to the presidency of the United States, uh, Marine Le Pen's very uh, strong campaign uh, in the French election, um, and, you know, a variety of Islamophobic tendencies in Europe and uh, the continental United States. I was wondering whether this could be viewed as, uh, rather than desperation in these acts, almost a... concerted tactical move and adjustment of you know strategy that with this uh where you now have kind of a growing sense of culture resentment on both sides that it's almost successful in a sense and an extension if you buy that idea at all whether or not uh things could deteriorate in the future uh and that then this could go back to Islamist groups having a strong foothold domestically, if, you know what I, if that uh, progression of thought made sense.
0: Before I ask John to reply, first, thanks to those who have asked questions, and second, I would like also to encourage uh, female members of the audience to, to ask questions as well. Excellent. Okay, mm-hmm. Excellent. Next round. Yes, okay.
1: John. Um, in, in terms of the first question, there were, there were two parts of it, but in some ways they're, they're most easily... Uh, conjoined in the sense that, um, if you look at the conflict in Syria, uh, although in, in the early months of the mobilization um, against the Assad regime in Syria, you know the initial protests were nonviolent, and you know uh, the, the first group that at- attracted uh, attention. Uh, you know, internationally, was this Free Syria Army that 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 claimed to have a, a secular basis? But over time, the policy of Western governments, and particularly the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, um, uh, and, and most other NATO states, excepting Turkey, um, was that uh, they did not actively uh, arm and assist uh, this group uh, in in a in a serious way. At the same time, with a nod and a wink, they enabled uh, the Saudis, the Qataris, uh, and, the, and Turkey, that it had its own interests, uh, to funnel arms and assistance to different groups. And who did these countries choose but different kinds of Islamist activists? So in a way, it was, um, it was non-intervention, but with a nod and a wink, Towards forms of uh, certain kinds of assistance, and if you go back to you mentioned the Taliban. If you if you rewind the clock to the, the 1980s before the Taliban, it was American and Saudi uh, and Pakistani support for a variety of these different so-called mujahideen, and later it was only Pakistan that basically sponsored the Taliban, uh, armed, trained, and and you know helped them over the border to take control over Afghanistan. So it's certainly the case that individual states use Islam as a a vehicle for um, domestic and foreign policy and instrumentalize it, and that's part of the story here as well, um, to be sure. Um, Just as I was suggesting that even in these countries where we see internal implosion and warlordism, a lot of the time it's because there are various forms of foreign intervention uh, messing around in these countries. Um, Iran has been heavily involved in uh, Iraq in arming certain groups. Iran has been heavily involved in Lebanon in arming and and assisting uh, Hezbollah and is also heavily involved in Syria. So there's a lot of this. Um, And so I think the Syrian conflict is an example of that. Um, When it comes down to elections, you know, Money can buy you lots of things. The song goes it can 't buy you love, but you know money is crucial uh, for electoral machinery it doesn 't always work just having the money um, but it 's part of the story in egypt it 's part of the story in a variety of settings uh, where you briefly have elections but it 's not enough in terms of global jihad uh, as uh, an act of uh, desperation um, can you can you Clarify the question. There, do you want me to, to reiterate the argument or to spell it out more clearly? It, 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 was that it? That's what you'd like. You know,
4: we, I suppose that it was uh, a.
1: I only for the, clarification. The short-term
4: implications. I was like kind of more interested, like where you thought that would go long-term. I suppose.
1: Oh, right, in terms of Donald Trump and so forth. Yeah, Okay. Yes, well, sorry. Well, uh, no, no, no I, I'm, I'm forgetting the, the, the points you were suggesting in particular. My, my fault. Um, I think that uh, it's probably useful to go back to 2003 and the invasion of Iraq. Um, that was widely derided in this country. If you were in this country in 2003, you'd recall that the single largest popular demonstration in the, in the history of the UK was you know, a demonstration against uh, the UK joining uh, with the United States in the invasion uh, of Iraq. And to this day, people are bitterly you know, so angry about it that Tony Blair can't go out in public without bodyguards. Um, but the overwhelming majority of people who participated in those demonstrations and the bitterness was among non-Muslims, who are the majority in this country after all. And thus, if you, if you fast forward to July uh, 7th, 2005, what's interesting is that the bombers um, uh, who avowedly carried out the bombing in the name of Islam and as a kind of protest against British foreign policy, among other things, um, they did so during a period when various forms of Islamist activism in this country had been grossly overshadowed um, and had slipped off of uh, the front pages of the newspapers. Um, there's an interesting study that shows how, by the time of those bombings, people had forgotten about you know, Islamist activists. And opposition to the war in this country was, was no monopoly of Muslims by any stretch of the imagination. And so, in, in this day and age, People around the world hate Donald Trump, right? People around the world are disgusted by Donald Trump and disgusted by, you know, the United States under Donald Trump. People, uh, by contrast, several years ago, uh, felt very differently about uh, Barack Obama. And he gave a famous speech in Cairo. But I think, you know, people around the world are not so uh, simple-minded or simple in their politics Um, in terms of the consequences of changes of leadership uh, in the United States in particular, for that kind of, to to assimilate and reduce all of their feelings about the world politics to sort of switch on and off in response to one or another American policy. It has much more to do with the real-life consequences for people on the ground in one country or another that is invaded uh, and otherwise undermined by one government policy or another, so I think that the kind of ebb and flow of you know kind of popular opinion uh, and repugnance towards one or another foreign leader, you know, it, it is kind of you know on the surface of something much deeper, uh, and something that's basically heading in the same direction. Many Muslims around the world know that there are plenty of non-Muslims who can't stand Donald Trump, who are appalled by Donald Trump, you know, so. It, it doesn't necessarily undermine their sense of being part of a shared global, you know, audience uh, that you know circulates YouTube videos and makes jokes and and so forth about Donald Trump uh, across the religious divide.
0: Two people there, at the very back, uh, sitting. I think next to next to each other. Yes, one. And who else was? Yes, over there.
5: Hi, thank you for your lecture. Uh, the Foreign Affairs magazine has published yesterday an article uh, entitled um, Will Al-Qaeda Make a Comeback? So I wanted to know uh, your opinion on this idea.
0: Was the hand up just next? Yes, okay. This person had raised their hand earlier. Okay, yeah, thank please. you for your presentation. Uh, from Indonesia, so thank you, thank you for the presentation. And. Um, in my case, I want to ask more about your opinion on the case of Ahok and mm. how the elites would actually use this case as an identity political politics to some extent. And because we have an upcoming election in 2019, and how do you see like Islam would play part in this?
1: Okay. So on the first question, in terms of the idea of the resurgence of Al-Qaeda, um, I guess it, it, you know, it depends on what part of the world we're talking about. Um, there are analysts who look at Syria, for example, today and see that the, uh, the residual group uh, that remained loyal to Al-Qaeda and did not join with the Islamic State is one that has retained a certain kind of territorial control in a certain uh, part of, of Syria um, that now has strategic significance, even as uh, the size of uh, the Islamic State's, uh, you know, area of control is is rapidly shrinking. Uh, there is uh, an element of Al Qaeda-affiliated, um, you know, mobilization and territorial control in a part of Yemen, for example. Um, but you know, these are are rather remote, uh, limited areas. Um, and if we were to look at the, you know, so-called lone wolf uh, terrorist bombers who disturbed the peace in Western capitals, their affiliation or allegiance with Al-Qaeda in the first instance, um, Islamic State in the second, is, is fairly attenuated, is fairly loose and limited. Um, you know, these are people who are inspired in one way. They're not, you know, sort of... Uh, Command controlled uh, in, in that way. So I, I don't really think, you know, Al Qaeda as it evolved and degenerated, um, you know, in insofar as it existed as an organization was always quite limited uh, as such. Um, so I, the idea of if it's going to reconstitute itself uh, as what, as a kind of a name, as a brand, uh, as a as a, a style. Um, as 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 a language, um, as, as something to claim uh, that you're affiliated with, but in terms of its effective presence, territorial control, and actual resources, it's quite limited to a few patches of the world where where groups that affiliate themselves with uh, the the remaining leadership of Al Qaeda in the Afghan-Pakistan border, you know, are are you know are only in a few places. In in terms of the Indonesian context. Uh, I mean, for most of the people in the audience, this is pretty obscure, but the, you know, the, the governorship race in Jakarta, um, which was you know, recently concluded and which saw the, the, uh, the, the defeat of this Chinese Christian figure in the face of accusations of blasphemy and ongoing court case uh, against him, uh, was one in which um, these sorts of religious issues were exploited by non-religious politicians positioning, as you noted, for, for the next elections, And I think that's a typical way in which Indonesian politics works, in which you have, and it's like this in Bangladesh and in Pakistan, uh, you know, and in, in some other countries as well, in which the, the, the competition between the big players in Indonesian politics, it's all about money and, and power and patronage, um, they're happy to partner up with and exploit these smaller Islamist players and to, you know, use them in the streets, to use them to make trouble and controversy, make a bit of money, um, try and get some extra votes. Uh, And in the process, they'll make some concessions to these parties on issues of social policy, having to do with education or, uh, you know, uh, little bits of local sharia law that are instituted in localities around the country. The anti-pornography bill. The banning of Indonesian playboy, these sorts of of issues, um, so there 's lots of opportunism on all sides here, um, and i don 't think it's going to go away, but I think the very fact that you have a Chinese Christian guy as the governor of Jakarta for three years who only you know is only beaten through a great effort tells you something about Indonesia. if you told someone in nineteen eighty seven or even nineteen ninety seven that the, the governor of Jakarta is going to be a Chinese Christian and might even be a, a good candidate for presidency, they would think you should be locked up in an insane asylum. I mean, it, it's so implausible. So the, the country has changed so much that that was even possible in the first place. is amazing and, and a good thing, even if you're not Christian or Chinese. Okay.
0: This <laughs> lady here. And then I saw, yes, I need to take, okay, uh, one more uh, question. So, Yes. And then this gentleman with the uh, red cardigan, please.
5: Um, hi, Professor. Uh, first, thank you very much for coming, and I'm from China. Um, my question is so we see since the last century, uh, especially from 1950, a lot of revolution and social movements that are related to Islam happened, and even to now, a lot of problems related to that, if we can call it it is a problem it's related to islam so my question is why it is specifically islam not catholic not buddhism or just is that because this uh, where this kind of issue happened, it's happening in the third world because third world they are facing about the problem of seeking for democracy, uh, democracy and Uh, anti-imperialism or westernization that this kind of problem or it is something originated in this religion which I don't quite believe in this so or something else you think there's reason for why specifically Islam become a threat or problem that's my question thank you
3: All right, uh, thank you very much for coming here and giving this amazing lecture. I'm from uh, Germany, Frankfurt. And I also have two questions. Um, the first one is related more to foreign and security politics. So I understand your approach here uh, in Western Europe. It's about uh, to 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 have um, the dialogue, and it's about a strong civil society. Uh, but what about countries to which national security is on stake? So we can take, for instance, Egypt. Um, the government doesn't really doesn't really have the control over uh, ISIS uh, s- cells in the Sinai, or um, maybe even not um, no control over the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, some period of times. Or taking the case of Israel, Israel doesn't really. It's my opinion, in my in my point of view, doesn't really have a control of the um, population in the West Bank or in Gaza Strip in order to try to make a dialogue. So, what's the uh, approach there? Um, related to to extremism or to uh, Islamism attack, attacks, and
0: the second question is, um, it's more like an. So I need to stop one one right. only question because mm-hmm. we are running out right. of time a okay, little okay, no bit. Yes, can you can you take two more questions? Yeah. yeah. Okay, sure. two more questions. Yes, uh, from this gentleman over there. Yes. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: Um, hey, thank no. you for the lecture. Uh,
0: um, oh. Thank you
4: for the lecture. I'm from the States. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on what you would recommend towards protesters in current dictatorships, what lessons they could take from, um, <clears throat> from Tunisia and from Indonesia in building democracies, and what they could learn from the counterfactuals in Libya and Egypt, among others.
5: And also from the United States, how would you define a successful pluralistic society, and do you think it can exist?
1: Okay okay um lots of really tough questions thanks a lot um, <laughs> um let's see now uh, in no particular order other than um my greater confidence and clarity to begin with uh, um some of these in terms of the, the question um uh, about Egypt and israel and the the occupied territories, I would say that um we don't see things out of control in these settings. Um, and, and if we look at Israel, for example, um, uh, you know, th- there's the whole question of the Arab and Muslim population within Israel proper. But in the Gaza Strip, you have a very tightly controlled, um, you know, uh, embargoed, uh, confined population. And Israel will periodically, as they say quite openly, mow the grass Right? They starve this population. They minutely control the average caloric intake of people in Gaza. They're that you know, misanthropic and manipulative. And, um, and they periodically bomb the hell out of, the, of, of that Gaza Strip. On the West Bank, they've managed to co-opt uh, and train, along with the CIA, uh, members of the FATA organization, from the PLO, uh, to maintain uh, authoritarian control over the West Bank and uh, squeeze and torture people um, who uh, oppose them. So I think Israel has things pretty tightly uh, locked up. In the case of Egypt, um, and, and then to move on in part to that other question, it, it seems to me that uh, one of the big tragedies that we've seen in the past decade has been the, what happened in Egypt. Uh, and that is to say you had a brief period between 2011 and July 2013 uh, of democratic opening in the country. And why did things end so quickly? And I think part of the story is that, uh, and I've, I've written about this comparing what happened in Egypt to what's happened in Indonesia, and it seemed to me that the, there's a tendency to demonize the Muslim Brotherhood and President Morsi. But he never was really allowed to actually... Uh, occupy real power, and the Parliament that, that saw the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamists uh, in such a dominant position was dissolved. Uh, so I think part of the story is that the uh, the military was sufficiently strong uh, to prevent the Muslim Brotherhood from really exercising democratic control. On the other hand, there are those from outside the Muslim Brotherhood who, who say this was a party that you know, by a set of fortuitous circumstances, won such a large segment of the vote when it really didn't represent uh, the broad mass of the population. A subsequent election, you know, they they only by some strange lucky or unlucky circumstances did so well in the elections. Did not build good alliances with other parties. Did not have the coalition-building experience you had in in uh, Tunisia. By contrast, and it was that appearance of strength, excessive strength in terms of formal power, but weakness in terms of its informal uh, real power that doomed it to overthrow through uh, a, a foreign-backed coup and phony people power mobilization in, in July 2013. In the case of Tunisia, the positive counterfactual is that it was a party that was sufficiently strong but also sufficiently weak that it, it was forced to share power with other, uh, other parties. And has thus been incorporated through, uh, you know, kind of parliamentary democracy that involves coalition governments and compromise uh, rather than a hegemonic position uh, uh, under a presidential democracy. Um, a successful pluralistic society, uh, I don't know if you ever fully get there, um, but I, I guess, you know, it, it involves continued struggles by various groups over uh, a succession of decades and centuries to keep pushing for greater uh, inclusivity, to uh, a more equal distribution of power um, in society, uh, and to push against various forms of discrimination and persecution for minorities and disadvantaged groups. So I don't think a pluralistic society you ever get there, um, and it's not just about pluralism and tolerance um, it's also about um, struggle and conflict. And I don't think that pluralism just means everyone holding hands. It means, you know, uh, debate and difference. And that that has to be acknowledged and embraced. Finally, the last big question, why Islam? And, and I, it, more or less the question must be something like, why is Islam so problematic? Why is Islam so violent, uh, perhaps? And here I would say, you know, let's not forget that, in fact, we see Buddhism quite violent. Um, we see it in Burma uh, over the past few years when Burma's or Myanmar's transition to democracy has seen at least as much more violence in the name of Buddhism against minority Muslims than you ever saw by Muslims against Christians in Indonesia and what I didn't say but is worth saying in the Indonesian case is if you added up all the deaths in Indonesia during this period of, of change and upheaval and even violence I'll bet you a huge amount of money that there are more Muslim casualties than Christian casualties. More Muslims were killed by a long shot than Christians. Christians were at least as guilty of large-scale atrocities against Muslims as vice versa. So I don't think it's only Islam, but I think there are two things about Islam that are distinctive in the bigger scheme of things. One is the position of Muslim countries in, in the world system, um, a combination of strength and weakness, of subordination, but also of of ideas of, of recuperating some form of, of power vis-a-vis um, uh, non-Muslim parts of the world. Uh, there's a preceding history of mobilization during the Cold War against communism in a variety of settings, not only Afghanistan. And there's also an, an organization of the faith that leaves it sufficiently open and free from the control of institutions like churches and states and the Vatican-like institution that mean that it's available for people to try and mobilize it in different ways, both peacefully and violently. And so people can do all sorts of things in the name of Islam, and that makes it possible um, for people to try and use violence to impose something coercive on a faith which is actually quite uh, freewheeling and open to the kinds of popular you know pressures and pulls in different directions that we associate with pluralistic democracy. That's the best I can do.
0: Okay, so I'm afraid our time is up, so uh, apologies to those who wanted to ask questions, but we cannot, but Professor Seidel will join us on the fifth floor for a drink, so you might be able to have a little conversation with, uh, with him later. So please join me in thanking him for refreshing and also optimistic.
1: Thank you.